sweet of him. Look on the ASA. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. It was basically a cube with inside of sphere where the points of the cube uh, were touching outside of the sphere. States. It's a worldwide phenomenon. That UFO podcast is powered by Zencaster. Zencaster is one of the world's leading platforms for recording and hosting podcasts. The open beta strives to put the power of studio quality remote video production into the hands of anyone with a story to tell. Features include HD video recording, studio quality sound, chat and footnotes all running right from your browser so you can record from anywhere without ever installing anything. Check out the links in the show description to find out more. This is Ross Coulthard and you are listening to That UFO Podcast. Hi everyone and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. My name is Andy and we are closing 2021 with some big discussions with some big names. Fresh from our recent conversation with journalist Ross Coulter, I am delighted to welcome a Professor of Biological Anthropology at Montana Tech in Butte. He received a PhD in anthropology from the Ohio State University in 2009 where he specialised in hormonin evolutionary anatomy archaeology and biomedicine. He is also the author of the excellent book, Identified Flying Objects, a Multidisciplinary Scientific Approach to the UFO Phenomenon. I'd like to welcome Dr. Michael P. Masters to the podcast. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me on. It's really good to have you on. And again, judging by the reaction from the listener questions, they, they poured in very quickly. It's, uh, it's shaping up to be a good conversation. Awesome. Dr. Masters, to get right into it, at uh, could you tell the listeners um, what are your first memories on the subject of UFOs and what really got you interested? Well, my first memory was unfortunately not of seeing one or having any sort of encounter, but hearing about a, uh, an encounter my father had before I was born. Um, when I was eight years old, when I heard him telling the story about it to some friends that were over at our house, and uh, it definitely piqued my interest. It wasn't anything that was too extraordinary as far as ufo encounters go i just saw a bright glowing ball of light in the sky that darted toward his truck and then back across the horizon and then shot straight up which obviously isn't conventional aircraft or anything else that we know of today that could do that so it it fits the definition of a a ufo um so yeah i started sort of becoming interested in it then and uh, not long after he got Whitley Strieber's book, Communion, and that's what really started my fascination with this from a time travel perspective, as I remember seeing the cover of, of Whitley's book and uh, sort of that quintessential alien form, uh, though he assured me that the forehead of the visitors he saw was much larger than how his artists depicted that on the cover of his book. Um, so, yeah, I just kind of visualized an early hominin form modern human form and then this alien and and wondered if there could be some sort of connection there, a phylogenetic connection and evolutionary relationship. 
So just kind of started pursuing questions related to that aspect of it. And, um, you know, obviously considering other models and other approaches too, not thinking that this is the only way to understand the phenomenon. It's got to be very multifaceted, a lot of different potential origins for the different beings and the types of craft that are seen. But um, I, I do think that this time travel model helps explain a lot of the aspects of at least a majority of encounters. So I've sort of been um, an advocate for that, taking a, an abductive approach, trying to find inference to the the best explanation, essentially, and um, just make a case for this model while also considering other interpretations as well. And is time travel something that, from a young age, you had an interest in, like Back to the Future or those kind of movies? Yeah, I did. I, I especially all of the the weirdness that goes along with it. It's it's very thought provoking. And when I started reading books about time travel, I think the first one was The River of Time by Igor Novikov, uh, About Time by Paul Davies, um, both physicists, one Russian, one I think British. Um, and yeah, it it hurt my brain a lot. But um, I don't know whatever dopamine reward came with that apparently kept me going because I uh, just really went deep into that rabbit hole, um, started reading academic journals that uh, relate to time travel and um, yeah, theoretical aspects, um, how it may physically happen in the real world. Um, It's just, yeah, it's something that had me chasing dopamine, I guess, always kind of challenging thought and trying to understand paradoxes and in different scenarios. So yeah, I guess I've had a longstanding interest in time travel as well. Something I've always enjoyed, whether it's reading or if it's watching a TV show or a movie is, or even a documentary is like you say, the different ways time travel is interpreted and whether it's, you know, going 88 miles per hour in a car or like Tenet, which took me several viewings to kind of start to get my head around. The which which one? A, a Tenet, the movie. I haven't seen that. The right Christopher there. Nolan. I'm always yeah. looking for a good time travel movie. It's uh, it's good for the surround sound. It's uh, it's got a big, big soundtrack all the way through it. But oh, again, nice. it's um, I'm sure you'll understand it much quicker than I did as well. But it's again just the different ways it's the, the interpretations are put forward for the audience. How do you think of of time travel? And relates to you know the phenomenon of UFOs because I think something that goes a lot, especially on on Twitter when you've got two hundred and eighty characters, you're having conversations about something that's clearly very complex if it's indeed possible, and people tend to think of time travel as going back and forwards along a a linear timeline. Is that something you subscribe to, or do you think the idea is more complex than that? Well, I mean, it really depends on if we're talking about time travel in the context of the block universe or the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. Um, with with the block universe, which is what I focused on in my, my first book, uh, because it's the main way in which the physics community understands time and therefore time travel. So I, I kind of kept with this notion of self-consistency. I mentioned Igor Novikov earlier, and he proposed the, the principle of self-consistency, where in the block universe, where essentially um, everything that has ever happened and will ever happen in the universe exists as this massive four-dimensional block of space-time. So in that context, if you physically travel into the global past, you're still going forward in time in your local reference frame. So if you're 
inside a UFO, for instance, which I think is the actual time machine itself, um, then you would still be going forward in time. You wouldn't start walking backward and see eggs go up onto the counter and reform or anything like that. But you're going into the global past. And when you visit that past in the block universe, there really aren't any sort of um, consistency paradoxes or uh, bootstrap paradoxes or any causal time loop paradoxes that people often think of. Because when you go into the past, anything you did in that past period is already manifested itself by the time you left. It's non-disruptive. When you leave from the future, anything you did in that past is already um, taken place. Any any change that you think might have happened has already occurred. Um, so it's, it's kind of paradox-free and it, it makes more sense. So that's why I stuck with that uh, in the book. But in my, my new book, I am discussing other aspects of it with regard to the question of interdimensionals, um, other timelines in the multiverse, uh, the many worlds interpretation, as I mentioned. Um, and, and there you have a different way in which things could take place. Um, and it's kind of been talked about more lately with these cataclysms and what would happen if, you know, this cataclysm didn't exist and the greys are fighting. I'm sure you've heard all of that. It's been uh, batted around the internet kind of a lot lately. I, I became aware of that idea in January, so almost a year ago. And kind of talked with some people about it uh, who are trying to make me aware of it. And it's something interesting to consider in that context. It would definitely fall into the multiverse. Um, But, you know, there could be interdimensional aspects to it, too. They could be moving through a fifth dimension or possibly time is uh, three dimensional. We think of four dimensions, three space, one time. But uh, William Tift, an astronomer at Arizona State, thinks that there may be three dimensions of time. And we move through this one timeline within that. So. We're, we still don't understand space-time enough to really know exactly how this would happen. But if we look at the form of these crafts, and especially in the context of what's so commonly reported, where uh, time speeds up and slows down in proximity to them, and I've focused on a number of case studies in, in my upcoming book that shows that this is a very common phenomenon. In fact, Luel Elizondo just mentioned it in a, a, a GQ article <clears throat> that came out last month, I think it was talking about how pilots will only use five minutes of fuel, um, but they were in the proximity of this thing for some 30 minutes or, uh, you know, things like that that happen. So it indicates that there is some sort of bubble, some um, approximate warpage of space time that's happening around these craft. And if they can slow up and speed, speed up and slow down time within that vicinity, within that radius, uh, it sort of indicates that they have the ability to manipulate space-time on a larger scale and therefore moving in and out of it forward and backwards doesn't seem like that much of a stretch. You've mentioned a few very interesting ideas that I've got questions that I'll, I'll lead on to soon, so that that's really good. Um, the, the idea of future humans, why do you think any species that maybe ourselves represented in the future would be interested in visiting us now? Or do you think that's always been happening? Yeah, uh, Paul Heineck always asks a question. He he says, how would they find us and why would they care? And I think this time travel model helps explain both of those. It'd be easy to find us because we know we're here. And we have been here on this planet for about six to eight million years as upright walking hominins, at least. And why would they care if they're us? I mean, that's exactly what I do as a paleoanthropologist is I care enough about the past to travel around the world and dig up bones and figure out our 
a revolutionary relationship with other primates and other species. So I, I, I do think it helps uh, answer those two questions. And, and, and it may be much deeper than just uh, an interest in what we had been doing. I, this intense focus on gamete extraction, sperm, eggs, sometimes developing fetuses and these reports of abductions, if we can take those seriously. And because the things that um, they're being taken up into are very similar to these craft that are seen by pilots and police and, and everyone else. I think it's all part of the same phenomenon for the most part. And because it's happened to so many people and their stories are so consistent, I don't see any reason we should discount those. We should at least you know, take them seriously and consider uh, these eyewitness accounts. And um, yeah, that be, this intense focus on gametes seems to indicate that there's something about reproduction that's involved. There may be some reason some problems that they're having in the future with reproduction, or uh, I argue in my my first book about uh, homogenization of our gene pool, because we're all just one interbreeding population now on this island of Earth, essentially. We may uh, p- suffer from problems with an increase in homozygous recessive traits uh, that result from incest, essentially. We may become one large incestuous population. The only way to get new gene variants might be to dip into the past and take, um, take genetic material from individuals, groups, haplotypes that didn't make it into the future, which would add novel gene variants to that future and help diversify our genetics to some extent. Uh, there, there's already a decrease in birth rates. Uh, I think there was a, something like a 40% decrease in sperm counts in all men across the Western world, regardless of what nation you're talking about. So it could be related to fertility, fecundity, or potentially problems with our genetics. There's a, a lot of reasons why we might visit the past, but that aspect of the abduction phenomenon seems to indicate that reproduction somehow involved. You mentioned that obviously as a as a species standing upright, as as you put it, and I'm I'm going to be the guy trying to use the layman's terms here, that we've been around eight to nine million years. Recently, Luis Elizondo, who you mentioned, has said in several interviews that around seventy thousand years ago there is evidence that our our genetics may have been manipulated that sprung us forward in the evolutionary scale. What have your thoughts been on that? Uh, I hadn't heard that, um, but that is interesting. I, I would have to do a little more research to be able to provide an informed uh, commentary. Though, I mean, it does kind of correlate with um, what Jim Penniston reported. There's a binary code download that he uh, claims to have received when he touched this craft in the Rendlesham Forest in 1980 said that they can only travel back some 50, 60,000 years. I forget the exact number. Um, so, I mean, if, if there is evidence of some sort of change, um, it would kind of dovetail with that, that time frame, I guess. But um, no, I'll have to look into that. I'd, I'd be interested to see where he got that information from. Yeah, if you look up Kurt Jaimungle, Theories of Everything podcast on YouTube, which is fantastic anyway, uh, he had a conversation with Luis Elizondo that went about two and a half hours, and this this came up in, in that interview, as well as a few others, but that one's uh, well timestamped. So I will, I will mention too, though, that as far as you know, our culture and technology, we've had a, an acceleration in the rate of change throughout a, a very long period of time, really going back to the origins of, of our species, r- really even before that, since the beginning of culture, uh, you had Homo habilis, Homo erectus making these very simple stone tools. And 
all of the technology we have today is built upon those earliest devices. Uh, we have descent with modification, but there's been a steep accelerating curve, this geometric curve. Um, so because that's already been happening, there could have been something 50, 70,000 years ago that was an intentional manipulation, but we kind of seem to have already been um, evolving at a, a more rapid rate, both in our, our biology and our culture. So um, if, if there was an intervention, I think it, it it may have kind of been a part of what was already happening, but yeah. I don't know. You touched on the new book, and uh, my my co-host Dan was very excited about the idea of discussing temporal species. And you mentioned interdimensionals, different dimensions, different states of existence. What is your your research showing? Obviously, not to spoil what may be in the new book, but what is the current thinking? We've we've moved way down the line from aliens are visiting us from Mars to there might be aliens here already to discussing different dimensions. What's your, what's your current thinking along those lines? Well, I've kind of, you know, it's circling back to what we were talking about um, early on, I guess hasn't been that long, but (laughs) uh, earlier in the show, I was mentioning how I've, I've tried to maintain an open mind and not uh, subscribe to any sort of bias, confirmation bias, especially, which is common in academia and, and elsewhere, especially in the UFO community. But um, yeah, I, one thing that that sort of evolved in 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 my mind is is, is going back to that that multiverse, the interdimensional aspect, and and I kind of see them all as the same thing. Um, it's almost as if the the arguments I made in my first book are specific to the block universe. But if we're talking about upright walking human forms with bigger heads, smaller faces, bigger eyes, more advanced technology, if they are coming from a different dimension or using higher dimensions to travel, or if they're from different timelines as per the multiverse, I see it as all kind of the same phenomenon. We're still talking about humans in a more evolved state from our future but they're visiting us in different ways. So I I sort of see interdimensional, the multiverse, the extra tempestrial models, I call it sort of being all an aspect of the same future human phenomenon, just uh, different ways of interpreting based on how we understand time. As a species where we are now in our, you know, our evolution, do we have the awareness to understand a species like that that may exist, you know, as you say, within i mean i i struggle to think about wi-fi and how we've got signals and data flying all over and they go from you know a, a block on your desk to your phone and you can't see them but in the same breath there may be whole species of existence that exist that we just can't see is that something you think we're at a place where we can understand well possibly um you know clearly they're they're much more evolved uh in their technology that's very apparent um, also their biology based on longstanding trends in hominin evolution. And I, I mentioned the expanding neurocranium, the smaller retracted face, smaller teeth, bigger eyes, more dexterous fingers, things like that. Um, but importantly, they also seem to be more evolved in their consciousness. And, and there seems to be a very strong connection between consciousness um, and the phenomenon, especially with these ones that seem to be from a more distant point in our evolutionary future it's it's important to point out that a lot of these sightings involve fully modern humans 
individuals that are piloting these craft, these disc and mostly triangular and disc shaped craft, but they're entirely human in every form and they speak vocally the same way that we do. However, once you get into these these gray aliens and, and, and other forms that are um, at least based on the free foundation study, the Dr. Edgar Mitchell foundation study are the second and third most commonly reported. It goes humans just like us, short grays, tall grays, and then only about 5% are the reptilians and the, the mantid. So if this, uh, these statistics can uh, help guide us on what's most commonly seen, that, that would also make sense in the context of this model, because we expect to see humans from closer periods to us, whatever our now is, um, simply because of sampling error. It's the same thing in archaeology, where we find fewer things the farther back we go. There's just more periods, more things that can happen to those materials. So we find less of the material culture of older groups. We'd expect to see people coming from a more proximate point in our future who look like us, who dress like us, who obviously have more evolved technology. But then when we get into these other forms, the tall and the short grays and the tall grays especially, that consciousness aspect seems to be a big part of it, and especially with regard to their communication. Um, but even outside of being in our presence, you know, the, the CE5 aspect of the phenomenon, um, people claiming to have this connection to them in, in a, a number of different capacities. So I, I think, yeah, as far as a more ethereal type of, of being, it could be an aspect of this more evolved consciousness. Um, I, I don't know. I think it's going to be sometime before we really understand what consciousness truly is, but it, it seems to be an important aspect of the phenomenon, at least. It, it certainly does. And, and you mentioned right back at the start there that there are different shapes, obviously, of these craft and triangles, saucers, discs, uh, V-shaped craft, and there's a whole spectrum. Have you in your research seen any correlation from the shape of these craft to potential intent or purpose? Yeah, that's a, a great question. I, I have. Um, and I, I've been writing about that a lot over the last couple of weeks, specifically with regard to um, a number of different cases. But one in particular is Terry Lovelace's um, The Devil's Den Encounter, where he and his army buddy Toby were taken up into one of these massive triangular crafts, which, which seems to be similar to what was described in the Phoenix Light. Uh, the Phoenix lights that passed over, I think it was 300 miles. And most people remember it from Phoenix, obviously. Um, but they, they, not and not just Tim, there's been other people who also report going into that specific type of ship, which seems to be, I don't want to say mothership because it sounds kind of cliche and, and dumb. But it, it, in a lot of these reports, they describe seeing the same thing. Jerry Wills, uh, another abductee, described almost identical things to what Terry Lovelace did. With regard to um, these walls of incubators, just running across the one entire side of the wall of this this huge triangular ship, within those are are human humanoid hybrid whatever you want to call them fetuses developing. Terry Lovelace also describes seeing um, modern humans that are taking other modern humans into these rooms or stripping them naked, supposedly extracting sperm and egg. Uh, which is reported almost every uh, one of these encounters that happened to him and his friend Toby as well. So it almost seems like that ship serves some sort of reproductive purpose that, that it's, I, I think I called it a fertility facility or something, some stupid alliteration like that in my book. Um, Cause it seems to have that function. Whereas these 
uh, disc-shaped craft seem to be more um, used for transport, travel, um, most likely manipulating space-time, They're likely the time machines themselves. And, and that would make sense if you came back to a specific time. I don't think this huge five-story tall triangle would be able to travel through time, but if they can come to a specific time, they could build something like that in our time. Um, both of those abductees also describe being taken to a moon base on the dark side of the moon in this triangular craft. So you could build all of these things in a specific time period. You'd have the deep oceans, Antarctica, the dark side of the moon, all these places where you could easily hide. Um, it, it sounds kind of speculative and crazy, but if enough people are saying the same thing independently, I think it's at least worthy of our consideration. You had mentioned that pilots where they use five minutes of fuel when they've spent 30 minutes in the vicinity of, of some of these objects and various people in different events have reported, you know, that time dilation or missing time, whatever people want to call it. What I want to ask is, do the occupants inside these craft, in your opinion, suffer any effects, either positive or negative, from from traveling through time or space or whatever it may be? Hmm. Um, I don't know. I mean, if you're still moving forward in time within your local reference frame, it doesn't seem like there would really be too many uh, effects on you specifically. Um, one thing I, I mentioned in my book is if you you know, go into the past and you can pick these people up at different points throughout their life. And a lot of these lifelong abductees describe interacting with the same individual or individuals uh, who don't seem to age. So if they were picking up, uh, say, a, an eight-year-old child, and then the same individuals pick up that same person at age 15, 25, 45, up into old age, um, they wouldn't be expected to really age if they're doing all of that within the same couple of days or the same week. And, and importantly, they could go back to their own time that they came from and show up that same day, even if they were gone for a week or a month doing this. But if they did that enough, they would start to age at a faster rate relative to their significant other and their family, because they would be spending more time doing this, but still showing up around the same time that they left. But other than that, I, I can't imagine that they would subject themselves to any sort of uh, harm associated with this outside the craft. Clearly there's a lot of injuries that are reported uh, radiation burns and things like that. Uh, but within the craft, I assume they're pretty well buffered from that. And would you think the idea of, of time travel rather than extensive travel in space would also subscribe to that? Some of the movements that these craft have that appear particularly glitchy. Alex Dietrich and David Fravor reported the tic tac was actually tumbling above the water, mm -hmm. which is a really odd movement for something to make when it should just be sitting still. Uh, and what we hear about, do you think it could be that these things aren't moving really fast or popping in and out of existence in a space? Yeah, I do. I think um, this this time travel aspect of it helps explain a, a lot of those things where where something um, appears to sort of be fading in and out of existence, even that's commonly reported in these uh, these close encounters. And if there's a sphere of influence around it, if they're manipulating the space time metric within the the vicinity of these craft within a certain radius, you would expect to see things like that if they're coming in and out of our time periods too, we would expect to see them appearing and disappearing, just like they're so commonly reported doing. Um, one other thing that gets mentioned that kind of ties into that, and I, I see this as a criticism 
of this idea a lot where people think that if you travel through time, say you go 100 years into the past, now the earth is in a different place and you have to travel really far to get to it. But that's sort of a faulty way of thinking of space time because you're separating time from space. You're saying if you go through time in this way, the space where the earth was is now different. But space time is one thing. Minkowski space time is one four dimensional structure. So that's not not the case. Um, it, you kind of think of it if you're in a, a car and you throw a ball in the air, it doesn't instantly go back unless you're in a convertible, I guess, but it moves with you. Uh, a, a fly in an airplane doesn't know it's traveling at 700 miles an hour. It's moving with that thing. So you can kind of think of, of space time in that way. And the reason I bring that up is because when we see these craft appearing and disappearing, if that was an aspect of this phenomenon, if space and time were separate and the earth was moving as they're traveling in and out of time, you'd expect to see the ship moving very quickly as it's appearing or disappearing, but they don't. They stay in the same place, which indicates that there really isn't the separation of space and time in the way people oftentimes think of it. So, yeah, I think many things about the the, the way time passes, the way they're seen appearing and disappearing, uh, the way they sort of fade in and out of existence or or tumble and move around in different ways uh, is probably just an aspect of where they are within our relative time frame in global space time. We'd, we would expect to see those sort of uh, variations in the way that they're observed in these different capacities. Uh, experiences with seemingly temporal beings often come with prophecies or warnings. Uh, for example, the Bledsoes had the lady, uh, there was the Lady of Fatima and her prophecies. Do you think these are pointing at teaching us something or, or giving us a warning? You mentioned potential coming cataclysms earlier. Yeah, um, if so, they're not very good at it. Um, a lot of people think that about crop circles too, that it's trying to convey something. If if it is, it's crap. It's a crap way to tell us anything because the, the basic elements of communication are speaking and understanding. And, and if they're writing these things that we don't understand, nothing's being communicated. And with the warnings, uh, the aerial school, a lot of these school encounters, a lot of lifelong uh, contactees and abductees say similar things about uh, coming apocalypse cataclysms and uh, nuclear annihilation uh, is a big part of it as well. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think we should definitely take those seriously, especially because we now are in possession of, of weapons that can wipe out of the vast majority of life on this planet. It's certainly something to consider. But at the same time, if they have the ability to shut down these missile silos, which clearly they do, it happened here in Montana, the Malmstrom Air Force Base, I, I'm sort of under the impression that they wouldn't let it happen. If, if you know, they maybe tell us these things to get us to think about it and to try to make changes to preserve the earth. It's always about save the earth, save the earth. Um, but if they live on this earth in the future and they're stakeholders in the sanctity of this planet, you would think that they just wouldn't let it happen. If you see a kid playing with knives and guns, you go over and take the knives and guns from that kid. And that's probably how we seem to them in our very primitive warring state with these massive weapons that can wipe out life on the planet. Um, it seems like they would probably intervene and, and keep us from doing that unless it serves some purpose that we're not aware of. But yeah, it's an interesting aspect of the phenomenon. It's extremely common and I think we should take it into consideration, but I, I don't know what it means. 
talking about those destructive events a little bit more, it's interesting you say that another species, it would make sense they would come and take the matches off the kids as such, if, if that's where we're at in our state of, you know, progress. Hiroshima, Nagasaki, you know, bombs were dropped that were devastating to, to hundreds of thousands of lives and the planet yeah, going forward was, still feels those effects. I think it was 200,000 just in Hiroshima. It's it's huge numbers, and and you did preface what you said with that it could be for another purpose we're not sure of. But why do you think a species would allow those events to happen, even for example at Chernobyl, with the nuclear power plants effects still being felt for for thousands of years? It's going to be. Is there a limit as to what they may or may not get involved with? And I'm thinking also along the lines of meteor strikes or solar flares potentially impacting the planet, which is something we hear about often. Yeah, I mean, it, it could come down to that whole um, multiverse versus block time thing, too, where they can't intervene too much or it it causes a, a, a decoherence and we have a, a new timeline for them as well. Um there definitely seems to be a sort of prime directive involved. There's not a lot of influence. Um, there's one report that I talk about in my new book where um, this individual who wasn't abducted, he just encountered these um, these these humans. They, they were fully human that spoke uh, just like we do. Um, Joan Bird also talks about this, this case in her book, Montana UFOs, because it happened not far from here. Um, but this individual was asking all of these questions, was shown the inside of the ship, was told exactly how it works with the electromagnetism and these uh, flywheels and things. But he asked about Jesus and about religion, and they said they're not allowed to answer questions or talk about those things, which was pretty much the only question they wouldn't answer. And I, I found that interesting because it, it sort of indicates that they are really trying to to not really get involved too much with our culture and our perceptions of things. Um, and I, I don't know, a lot of people argue that many things in some of the major religions, especially the, the in Islam and a number of things in the Old Testament of the Bible, were essentially UFOs. Um, Ezekiel's sort of the cliche example, but there are a number of other ones as well. Uh, I've even heard some talk about Islam as a, a UFO religion. Um, there's some indications that it, it was inspired by some things that happened long ago. So, you know, th there seems to be some innate influence, uh, whether it's intentional or unintentional. I, I don't think if you're traveling to the past, you can avoid influencing a culture just because you are such an imposing force with your your high technology, high strangeness. So, um yeah, I don't know. It, it's it seems like they're they're definitely watching, uh, but then the question of intent is is much harder to really answer. How how involved are they in manipulating um, our societies, our culture, our our weaponry, our arms races, our political structures, our genes? As we talked about earlier, it's it's really hard to tell at this point. And to ask, and we're talking about the idea that uh, another species is is coming from the our future to here, or a variation of our future to here. So very much still Earth based. How does the idea of of aliens coming from another planet, extraterrestrials, obviously, meet with the ideas that you're discussing? Does it negate that possibility? Is it too far to travel, or do you think there's still room for for both to be possible? Oh yeah, I definitely think there's there's room. If if you have 
uh, a craft that can travel <clears throat> at even a fraction of the speed of light, um, you, you can traverse vast distances. I think they would still be within our galaxy. I don't think we're talking about intergalactic travel. Um, that might be prohibitive, but within our galaxy, and there are billions of stars within it, um, you know, it, that, that space, if you have the technology to travel at a very high rate of speed, obviously 300,000 kilometers per second is extremely fast, but you could, you could absolutely zip around or potentially use wormholes, but which would also make you travel through time. And we have to factor in that time dilation effect too. If you're traveling at a high rate of speed, um, it does make time move faster outside of your reference frame. So um, you couldn't just go back and visit your family after a two-year trip um, traveling at near the speed of light and expect everything to be the same. Your husband or wife would probably run off with somebody else. Your kids graduated college and uh, everybody might be dead depending on how fast you were going. So we have to factor that in. We have to factor in how they would find us. Again, we've only been sending out radio signals for about 70 years. So they've only traveled 70 light years. So there's not a lot within that range, a lot of stars and potential planets. Um, so the, how would they find us? Things is still, still a big issue. They, they certainly wouldn't be expected to look like us. There's so many unique things about our planet, the size of it, the gravity, the atmosphere, our, our DNA coding system, which is the coding system of all life on this planet. If there happen to be extra nucleotides or other base pairs, we wouldn't expect to have anything like us. And it's probably completely random that we ended up with the, the A, G, C, T base pair combos that we have in DNA to start with. So um, I think there's a lot of things, at least related to the humanoid forms, that indicate they are us. And obviously from the future, since we know what we looked like in the past and we know we didn't have technologies like they have. So I don't, I don't, write off the extraterrestrial hypothesis. I think it's still on the table, uh, as are the other main theories, the simulation hypothesis. I've been think, con- kind of considering that in some contexts um, with regard to the UFO phenomenon, ultra-terrestrials, the role of consciousness. Uh, there's, I think everything should be on the table. All, all valid theories should be considered. This is uh, too mysterious of a phenomenon to just take one position and, and, and think that they, it can't be other things. It certainly is, and, and one of the most interesting or, or hotly discussed aspects of the phenomenon, whether extratemporal or extraterrestrial, whatever it may be, is the idea that there have been crash retrieval programs. Where in your research and opinion do these objects that are so advanced in technology still end up potentially crashing and within human hands? Yeah, I, I thought about a funny example. I cut it out of my books. It was kind of dumb the way I wrote it. But uh, I, I guess I'm still going to tell you, which might be equally dumb. Um, but yeah, you've got, you know, certain situations where um, uh, I, I guess it was in the the Travis Walton case study where he, he escaped the room he was in with these short grays. And went into the control room is pushing buttons on this thing. There's pitch and yaw happening on the the craft, and it made me think like you know maybe maybe one of these crashes was the result of somebody breaking out and and pushing some buttons they shouldn't have. Um, it also sort of indicates you know that that we're, we're fallible now. We we make mistakes all the time. We crash things all the time. Uh, just because we have more advanced technology in the future doesn't mean that we're never going to have things go wrong. There can be mechanical problems. There can be 
uh, end user problems where, you know, somebody just takes a left instead of a right, crashes into some. If you are moving in and out of time, too, uh, you, you don't have to worry about the earth moving under you as you approach because you're moving together. Um, but who knows what's there? At that specific time, you'd think that they have technology to map it out before they just go blasting into a specific time period. But it, it adds an extra element of um, of surprise. You you might not necessarily be able to calculate all of those things just right all of the time, and you, you I would kind of expect crashes to happen. I think um, I think that's that's normal, and and sort of because we do it with all of our most advanced technologies, it's it's likely that we. We'll continue to, regardless of how advanced our technology gets. It's one of the most con, uh, common conversations, debates, arguments, whatever it may turn out to be online that I've had is, you know, people asking, well, why do these things crash if they're, they're so advanced? And you're right that if you went back to the first pioneers who sailed from whichever continents across oceans and showed them a an F-18 fighter jet or an F-22 or some of the cruise liners we have now and said that these things still aren't perfect, people mm-hmm. still die, there are still accidents that they wouldn't believe you because of the leap in technology. So surely, as you say, something else, just because it's thousands or tens of thousands of years potentially more advanced, doesn't mean that they're infallible and there may still be that that margin for error. It's it's an interesting conversation, though. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's a good metaphor. And In fact, with a lot of things with this theory, I like to think back just exactly how you did and think, well, how would they look at us now? You know, and, and I, I mentioned in, in my first book that if we went back, even in an FA-18 or, or some other advanced craft from our time period, if we did have the ability to manipulate space-time and use that as a time machine, if we went back to 100 years ago, I mean, we would look more or less the same, but our technology would stand out. But if we're talking about going back to, you know, 50 or 60,000 years ago, or if eventually we can go back even farther into the time of Homo erectus, Clearly, our technology is entirely magical to them. It's not anything they can fathom within the context of their stone tools and their spears. Um, but we also have many of the characteristics that we ascribe to these visitors with the relative hairlessness, the big heads and the small faces and everything I mentioned earlier. So, yeah, I think I think there's a lot of important ways we can um, sort of break apart this idea and understand it in the context of looking back um in the same way that we may potentially be able to look forward every time they come back to our time now from technology to psychedelics i want to change the discussion just very slightly Uh, psychedelics are something that we've talked about on the podcast a few times recently and there's a lot of studies going on now and the the research is currently finding or defining language for how these different substances affect us Amongst other things, they seem to affect our perception of time. People report meeting entities, all very similar to each other. What are the chances that some of these entities are are real beings who exist outside of our usual perceptions of time and space? Well, yeah, it kind of comes back to what you mentioned earlier with um, whether they could be some sort of energy aspect of our environment. Um, and, And clearly... The effects of, of psilocybin, LSD, DMT, and a number of other mind-altering drugs um, aren't fully understood as far as what happens. Where, not just in our physical reality, but with our consciousness. And part of that's because we don't yet understand consciousness, so we certainly can't understand how 
a physical drug affects something that seems to be, at least if you're a non-materialist, something that exists outside of space and time to start with. And a lot of near-death experiences sort of indicate this as well, where you'll have people, once they leave their bodies, are essentially unbound by space and time. They can move instantly to all these different places or different times. Um, people that are reborn in other bodies, um, past lives. I, I never used to believe in that, but I started researching it with an open mind. And there's a number of cases that suggest that people from the past, their consciousness leaves that physical form and enters another one at a different time. And if our consciousness is unbound from space time, why couldn't that happen? It's no different than going to a different body in your own time. Um, so I think we're really going to have to fully understand our consciousness in, in order to really understand what's happening when we take these drugs. Um, they, they clearly have an effect on our perception of time. Um, but it's much more than that too. Um, all, all perceptions are, are changed. So I, I think one, one thing that's important to consider too is, is that within the block universe, there isn't really change in the way we perceive it. Uh, there are different states. In fact, a physicist there in the UK where you are, Julian Barber, thinks that there's no such thing as as change even. Everything's static. There is no time in the way that we perceive it. But clearly, we sense things. And, and Einstein once said, you know, this this idea of this universal now or this static space-time is, is how could we understand it? How could we move through it? Um, we, we need this this time, this perception of time, just to be able to operate in the universe around us. And all of our cells have clocks in them. Uh, we have this circadian rhythm that, that matches up with the way our earth spins and the way it goes around the sun. So um, we clearly have a sense of time that we've evolved to be able to exist in this environment that we've evolved in. But that isn't necessarily the same thing as whatever time is, this non-quantized entity, this emergent phenomenon. Um, so, so I think, yeah, with the psychedelic question, it's, it's there's still just a lot of questions. I'm, it, it's fascinating. I would personally be really interested in doing research in that field. And we're starting to break down some of the barriers that have been imposed since the 1970s, mostly because there was active research in the 50s and 60s, but Nixon shut that down here in the US and that affected a lot of other countries as well. Um, but yeah, I think it's fascinating. And honestly, I think we'll we'll get a lot of answers to the consciousness question and potentially the, the UFO question, what these entities are, do they exist beyond our physical world? Because um, yeah, a lot of people, especially with DMT, report having encounters with them and very similar ones to what are described in actual physical UFO encounters. So um, yeah, I'll be, I'll be interested to see how that pans out. Hopefully it happens soon. Which areas of study are you are you most excited about in terms of our understanding of the phenomenon? Do you think that next leap or understanding will be in science, technology, medicine, or, or something else? Um, hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, I'm just excited about everything that's happening right now. I think it's fantastic. There's so much going on, and we are starting to break down the barriers that kept us from being able to study this in the academic community, the scientific community. And you have people taking this seriously and, and asking questions, developing testable hypotheses. Um, 
And, and yeah, I think uh, for me, and I'm, I'm actually hopeful that I get to do this. There's a potential that uh, I might with a, a project that I'm working on developing with some folks is, is looking at the, the brains of contactees and abductees doing functional MRI studies and, and, and this, you can make many testable hypotheses related to this, have a double blind study control groups, uh, and then have this experimental group and see if there are physical differences in their brains, uh, just in a static state. And also when they're, um, using telepathic abilities or precognition or, uh, remote viewing or any of these things that a lot of these people who have had um, parents or grandparents who have had contact and potentially hybridizations that took place with these uh, future humans. And, and are their brains different? You'd be able to see that in the MRIs of, of these individuals. So, you know, th- that's a question you could never write a grant for in the past, but maybe in the next five to 10 years, you could write a grant, and get money to do that. So that, that's very exciting to me. Just seeing the stigma and the, the shame that's uh, permeated this this phenomenon for so long start to wane finally after all these years is is uh, extremely encouraging, very exciting. That's a beautiful segue. It's a beautiful segue before my, my last question, before some listener questions for you, as um, Professor Avi Loeb of Harvard has had some harsh criticism from his colleagues for even entertaining the subject of UFOs. And one of his Zoom meetings was put out there where he gets uh, very, very harshly shot down by one of his colleagues again for, for what they see as a nonsense subject. How have your colleagues been uh, in terms of your book and, and your pursuit of this subject? Uh, it's been very different. Uh, quite positive, actually. It's unfortunate that that happened to him and is still happening. John Mack experienced the same thing at that same institution, unfortunately. Um, but no, it's been quite positive for me. I, I have a long track record of, of publishing in respected journals, um, you know, Frontiers in Neuroscience and, and other journals like that. So when I started researching this, I people knew my work, they knew me and knew I wasn't just flying off the handle and doing something crazy. And obviously, you know, Avi has, has the same, a much longer uh, track record of, of publishing and, and academic research and scholarship. So uh, I think it has to do more with the people involved. Um, I've been fortunate that there's a lot of open-minded colleagues at my university. Uh, they've very much embraced this book. In fact, they, the cover is right. And when you walk in the, the door of uh, the building where my office is with all of the other books that, that uh, faculty have published within my department. So uh, they asked me to teach a class ab- about the book to an, an honors uh, class going through each chapter week by week and breaking it down. Um, so yeah, it's been quite positive. When my book release happened, in 2019, I'd say 40% of the people there had masters or PhDs. Um, so it's, it's been very, very positive. Of course, there's always going to be people who have that knee jerk reaction, largely because of the stigma, especially if they're older, because they lived through that period where project grudge and project blue book were really forcing this, this zeitgeist where you're not allowed to talk about it. It's, it's of course, shameful. Everybody, it's not even real. And if it is real, then, you know, everybody that has these experiences must be crazy or hallucinating or have PTSD or whatever. So that was forced down their throat for a long time. I understand where that is coming from, 
but it's also time to get over that. It is a real phenomenon. We, we have confirmation of that from the highest levels in the United States government. So let's start trying to figure out what's going on. Let's figure out what these things are, where they're coming from, potentially when they're coming from, who's driving these things, what their intentions are. We, we can start asking these questions. There's always going to be detractors. There's always going to be closed-minded people. But uh, this is potentially one of the biggest questions of our time. So we need to get over that. It's great to hear you've had that positive experience as well. And I want to get to some listener questions to make the most of uh, the last part of our time, Dr. Masters. Uh, the first one is from Newman. Newman asks, what are Dr. Masters' thoughts on cattle mutilations? Uh, have you got any suspicion on why the phenomenon seems to be interested in extracting oddly specific tissues within these events? And also, have you heard of Colm Kelleher's theory that someone is potentially tracking diseases through our food chain? And that's why they're, they're checking out, for example, cattle. Well, it's certainly possible, but it's not just cattle. Um, I'm actually working with someone, a collaborator in Canada, and we're compiling a, a massive database of animal mutilations throughout the world. And for as long as we can go back and find um, uh, find stories about them, um, there's actually just recently there are a number of horses throughout uh, France, and they eat horse there, so I guess that still counts as the food chain. But in um, in the Vancouver area, somewhere on the, the west coast, I forget exactly where it was, there were these long lines of sea lions that were picked up, same types of, of mutilations that you have, these holes in their abdomens, drained of blood, no blood anywhere around, and then dropped in this line, which is very similar to a lot of these other mutilation events. So um, that, that could certainly be a part of it. It could be tracking some aspect of our environmental contaminants or diseases um, with regard to cows. You know, you have prion diseases like mad cow disease. So that's certainly something to consider. But the fact that it happens to all of these different animals and has through time could still be an aspect of testing bioaccumulations of, of toxins in our environment as we, we do now. We test for those things currently, or it, it could serve some purpose for them. Um, they may be using those tissues for part of their their incubation systems that are so commonly reported. Or, and, and interestingly, in many cases, they are described floating in a pinkish liquid. So if they're draining the blood from all of these animals and there's nutrients in that blood, and I'm just speculating wildly here, but um, you know maybe that's used as, as part of their, their incubation system for uh, the the people that they're making, I I really don't know, but it is it is fascinating, and um, that, that's actually there's a good chance that's going to be the main focus uh, after the the next book is is looking at the mutes and trying to really wrap our heads around that. And we even got some experiments planned um, as part of this this broader project that I mentioned earlier. So yeah, I, I find it incredibly fascinating. I think the mutilation aspect of the phenomenon is. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's it's part of my anatomy background, but it's uh yeah, it's it's really interesting, very mysterious as well. Let me follow up on that and let me try and word this properly. Do you think the phenomenon or whichever entities are responsible for abductions, mutilations, or any sort of unwanted, you know, interference with ourselves or, you know, the planet, do they have any kind of responsibility as we would know it? to to do that or 
you know, asking permission, you know, it's very invasive. Or I, I've often said, Dr. Masters, it's the equivalent of us fishing. We don't ask the fish permission to take them out of the water, give them that trauma, take them out of their natural environment, and then throw them back in. Is it just the same, but on that evolutionary scale? Well, yeah, it's quite possible. Um, the ethics question has come up a lot lately for me, um, especially in writing about abductions and these extractions that take place where you have people impregnated against their will and then developing fetuses taken from them at, at some point shortly thereafter, like that, that's, it's highly unethical. It violates um, human rights. Obviously we don't have universal human rights and, you know, there's a lot of things that, that humans do now that we'll consider unethical in the future. It wasn't that long ago that we thought, certain people thought that they had the right to enslave other people and uh, breed them in, in similar ways. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it seems like when you get into these stories of, of rape and uh, unwanted pregnancies and uh, mutilations, that raises a lot of ethical questions. But it, it for a lot of people, I found that it makes them feel better if it is humans. Uh, I met one individual the last time I was in Los Angeles, who described how he was abducted throughout his youth and subjected to these anal probes, which is very common as well. He said after reading my book, he suddenly felt better about it. He thought that these creatures coming from a different planet, taking us against our will, was somehow worse than people doing it. It's more similar to a doctor's visit as he described it after reading this. So I, I think it's maybe a little less egregious if it is people. Uh, I assume if it's research-based or to um, fulfill some need that they have in the future, there's still going to be rules and regulations. But I'm guessing the the needs of the many in the future outweigh whatever cost it comes to individuals in the past. And they may justify it that way, that whatever they're doing um, whether it be for them at their time or maybe for humanity as a whole, uh, can be justified based on the sacrifices that uh, a number of people have to make in the past, obviously against their will. The next question is from Tim. He asks, in your anthropological works, have you seen any links or parallels with the stories from ancient civilizations and any knowledge they may have held about humans existing in different times? Biologically, would we have looked differently in the past? What was the first part of that? Uh, so in your works, have you seen any links or parallels with stories from ancient civilizations and any knowledge they may have held about humans existing in different times? Yeah, um, there's, I mean, you, you obviously have a number of cave paintings and carvings and things that, that depict uh, very similar beings to what are described in modern UFO encounters and especially abductions and other very close encounters, but you, you do have um, oral legends as well, where you have these stories that are passed down for generations that that describe very similar things to what are described now. And um, I'm writing about a couple in my new book because I think it's something that doesn't get talked about as much. There's always physical things that are mentioned as having something to do with this phenomenon. Obviously, the the intentional cranial modification that a lot of groups have done throughout the past independently in all of these different parts of the world throughout thousands, tens of thousands of years indicates that 
there there may have been some common influence that they were in in some cases they they even said that their ancestors were instructed to do this by the gods or they were trying to look more like the gods but oral oral legends don't often get um talked about quite as much but there there are a number of those and they do describe very similar things specific to Tim's question I I can't think of anywhere they state that these are people from different times. Um, I think even now we struggle with understanding uh, time and time travel in this phenomenon in the context of time travel. I see a lot of debates online where I want to jump in and clarify some things, but I just don't have the time to do that. uh, There's always lurking trolls, I guess, too, that you got to watch out for. But um, no, I, I think we're not even at a point now where this is just, it, it seems very obvious, you know, if you think about it a lot and, and kind of work through the details. But when when you first are presented with this theory, sometimes it, it just, you know, it doesn't click right at first. So I, I don't imagine that people throughout the past who had even less knowledge of time or the, the physics of time travel or what might happen uh, logically if you, if you visit the past or intervene in the past, um, so I, no, I think, and I think that might help explain why the extraterrestrial hypothesis has been the dominant model for so long as well. It's much simpler to understand. We see these stars, we see these craft coming down from the stars. They must have come from the stars. It's, it's very intuitive in that respect. But once you start thinking about that one more, there are a number of problems associated with the logistics of that. Um, it's it's almost like learning to ski or learning to snowboard, where the extratempestrial model is more like snowboarding. You know, it's it's hard to learn, but once you get it, you can do it with skiing. It's easy to, to do, but it, it takes a while to get good at. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I kind of forgot what the question was with my skiing reference there. No, no, that was okay. It was, it was a good answer. Um, next question is from Dave, and Dave wants to know, have you considered that instead of these anatomically similar greys or others coming from the future, they're in fact a human subspecies that branched off from us in the past and potentially live underground or underwater? Yeah, I've heard that a lot. Um, I, I'm kind of starting to think somebody wrote about that or has been putting that idea out there. I, I haven't tracked down who it is yet, but uh, because I get asked that so much and so many people seem to think that, I, I kind of feel like there must be a common source. But there are some potential issues with that. Um, uh, one of the biggest ones is that we don't have any evidence in the archaeological record for a more advanced hominin species at any point. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, the, the technology we have today are, are cell phones or mobile phones, um, our cars, our jets, everything is descendant of these simple stone tools that we invented around 3 million years ago. So because there's this unbroken chain of technological evolution, but we don't see any branches or offshoots where we had sort of a parallel evolution or another group that did this earlier and then left our planet or went underground or somewhere else, there's really nothing to back that up. Um, It also, especially because if that did happen, we would see it. It, you, you don't really see hunter-gatherers encampments after a year or two. They they don't really leave much behind. But once you get to the point of agriculture and um, very advanced technologies, those the, the material culture that's left behind in the archaeological record, once you get to that state of advanced development, 
that shows up all over the place. So we would definitely see that. It's hard to argue that it happened and it just got lost somewhere or that this one society developed and then left. We would see very clear traces of that. So no, I don't, I don't subscribe to that theory. The next question, it's an interesting one and it seems like it has an obvious answer, but I really want to hear your thoughts. It's again from Dave. He wants to know, do you think that these time traveling beings could have come from our past instead of the future? And does your work in time travel theories and or the direction of evolution rule this out? You know, again, it comes down to this this aspect of descent with modification, building uh, on the cumulative nature of not just our technology, but our, our biological form. So in order to have these traits, if we can take these eyewitness accounts seriously, where people describe the beings uh, associated with these, these UAPs, uh, UAVs, UFOs, whatever you want to call them, they, they don't have any traits characteristic of our past, but they do have traits consistent with what we'd expect to see in our evolutionary future if these same trends continue, regardless of whether we live in space, on Mars, underground, the bottom of the ocean, wherever. We, we have this very long um, group of trends, physiological trends in our evolution here on this planet that are likely to continue regardless. So, um, yeah, no, I, I, I think it would be... I don't really know how that would work. I, I can't think of any logical way in which we would have something more evolved that came from our past specifically. Uh, next up, Josh wanted to know, have you spoken to journalist Ross Coulthard about the future human theory? Um, Not directly, no. We apparently are talking to similar people, if not the same people. I, m- I mentioned earlier that uh, somebody reached out to me in, in January of this year and um, laid out the the ideas uh, involving these competing timelines and a cataclysm. And then uh, Frank Milburn, I have been talking to him a lot about it. We've been having back and forth conversations for a month or so now. And and I think we're I think our sources, at least one of our sources is probably the same person. So we're we're definitely uh interacting with the idea but no i haven't i haven't talking talked to uh ross specifically about that but um I, it's it's fascinating to consider uh, i'm kind of hoping that it's not the case cuz you know who who wants a cataclysm it sounds kind of kind of horrible um but it's it's a really interesting idea um, in the, especially in the context of the multiverse, the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, because that would seem to be the only way this could play out. You wouldn't have a situation like this in the block universe, but you could potentially have something like that in the multiverse. It's a nice coincidence that I I, I interviewed Ross Coulthard last week, uh, spoke to you today, and I've got Frank Milburn tomorrow. Oh, so no that's, uh, Yeah, it's an interesting that's little awesome. string. That, that wasn't yeah. planned out that way at all, um, but that's a happy coincidence. Yeah, a couple more fun. questions before we finish off on the quick fire. I appreciate the time you've given us. Um, Gnosis asks, many contactee reports from before the 70s have very human-looking aliens do you believe time travelers may have masqueraded as aliens during this era because there was no CCTV and video recording? It wasn't commonplace. Were greys then brought in as a front for the digital era? 
Travis Walton, escaping his, his examination room, says he ran into a group of completely human-looking beings, as you mentioned before. Yeah, and importantly, those beings that he encountered uh, who were apparently on security detail because a big imposing uh, human man came and got him when he was messing with the controls. Um, but then he was taken to another room right before he was put to sleep and then dropped off um, near Heber, Arizona. But those individuals all looked very similar, he said, which is something that was described in Terry Lovelace's account and a number of others, too, that they seemed to have this familial connection, which also you would expect if there was this active breeding program taking place for whatever reason. Um, so, so yeah, I think, uh, you know, there's you got to get into the screen memories aspect of it, too. You've got to get into... Um, what happens with kids, you know, a lot of times they'll have these screen memories of owls or, or monkeys or Disney characters or, or whatever. Is is that that the beans were wearing masks? Was it some manipulation of their memory to make them remember things differently? Um, yeah. Or are they actually more evolved humans? Um, because it, going back to the Travis Walton case, we'll just stick with that one for now. Because he was being tended to by these big headed, small faced, big eyed humans initially when he woke up and it's when he freaked out and tried to fight them that, uh, they sent in the humans, but that, that it doesn't really indicate that there was anything that they were hiding or any reason to, to make him think that something happened differently. It just sort of seems like that's who they were. Um, and, and most likely they were the ones who were doing this research or, you know, probably just fixing him because he got hit by uh, a static electric discharge from the ship. So if they were tending to him as people from the future, and then they needed more human looking people to come get him out of there, um, it, it would kind of make sense why they would do that because he wasn't intimidated. He wasn't afraid of this other person because it looked just like him. So um, no, I, I think I really do think that that's just who they are. Um, I think the short grays are probably closer to us in time. I think it honestly won't be very long before we develop time travel technology, considering how human uh, a lot of these reports are, especially the ones before the 70s. Um, it kind of seems like we're, we're probably a lot closer to it than any of us realize. Their, their clothes are similar. Technology is obviously more advanced, but pretty similar. So, yeah, I think I think it's temporal ancestry for the most part. Just different people from different times may help explain some of the variation in their ships, too. Matt would like to know, do you believe that there are any governments in contact with our future selves? Yeah, I do, actually. Um, that's It's one of those things where it's hard to not sound like a crazy conspiracy theorist, but there there's a lot of things that people report, especially when, whenever uh, there's an encounter involving military personnel, there seems to be sort of a, a protocol that they go through. And a, a lot of them, Terry Loveless talked about this a lot in his incident at Devil's Den book, where he was under the impression that the U.S. Air Force Office of Special Investigations, the people that were interrogating him about his encounter, knew everything he was saying already. Uh, about the moon base, about the triangular ship, about the breeding programs that he observed. So, yeah, I mean, if, if we can take these accounts seriously and people keep saying the same things and are being in, 
examined or interrogated in the same ways by similar people, it, it kind of makes you wonder if, if there's not already a large group that are aware of this. Um, there's that report of Eisenhower meeting with them, you know, back in the 50s or whenever that was about testing nuclear weapons. And again, maybe that's to protect the earth uh, type things. We we're blowing up bombs like crazy back then. Uh, final listener question from Charles. And again, thank you to everyone. There was a lot more than that, but I couldn't obviously squeeze them all in or I would have had a Dr. Masters for another few hours. Uh, <laughs> Charles was wanting to know that he's been looking at studying fault lines and seismic activity. And recently, Luis Elizondo mentioned on several podcasts that there was a, a sensor, a very simple piece of equipment that can detect whether one of these objects had appeared, was going to appear or was there. And as as of yet, we've not found out what that sensor was. Um, Charles wondered, did you have any thoughts on what that may be? Charles wonders, could the immense force of tectonic plates cause dips into other dimensions? Hmm. I mean... There's definitely a lot of force associated with geologic activity uh, can create lightning, ball lightning. Obviously, there's a lot of energy released in association with volcanic eruptions and, and plate tectonic shifts. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, there's, there also seems to be a correlation between places that have uh, more electromagnetic energy or sort of anomalies around the Earth. Uh, Steve Mara in um, the UK has talked about that a lot, these correlations between where sightings take place most often and where these uh, electromagnetic anomalies are. So yeah, possibly it has something to do with the Earth's magnetic field or the energy involved. Um, it, it's hard to think that it would necessarily cause some interdimensional rift or anything like that, but um, I don't know. I don't. There, there's not a lot of evidence that there are higher dimensions. Most physicists currently don't think they exist but if they do um it, it transcending that would probably take a very high amount of energy so if you're going to get it anywhere it might be around uh plate boundaries excellent and again thank you to everyone who submitted questions just before you go dr masters i'd like to get your thoughts on our quick fire round on just a few subjects we've not touched on on the body of the interview you can say as little or as much as you want on each um, the first one is your thoughts on the gillibrand amendment which has just gone through the, the u.s senate oh uh, yeah it's great I, uh, I wrote my senator and said please support this and he actually wrote back um senator john tester of Montana wrote back specifically about that UFO aspect of the, um, the defense bill and, um, said he'd support it. So, uh, I, I think she has broad support from both sides of the aisle. Um, so yeah, great to see. I'm uh, hopeful that something comes out of it and we start to get more answers. It looks like this afternoon it was it was passed and uh, it's going to be on the President Biden's desk soon. So that's awesome. that, that's good news, really good yeah, news, uh, and good to hear you got a reply as well from your your local senator. Uh, the next next up is: Do you have any thoughts on Bob Lazar and his story? Um, I mean, I was really interested in it as a kid. Like like I said, I had always had a a, a deep and long standing interest in this, and I remember seeing a number of shows. When I was, I don't know, 13 through whenever, uh, involving him and his alleged um, involvement with reverse engineering these craft. And I, I don't know. I mean, it, it seems like we have this technology or 
eventually will. And if we happen to be gifted one of these craft from the future, somebody's going to have to work on figuring out how they work. Um, so we would expect that certain individuals would eventually come out and say, Hey, I worked on this thing. We're trying to figure out what it does and how to use it. So, you know, why couldn't it be him? I, I haven't looked into the specifics. I know there's a lot of haters out there, but I've, I've always sort of found him to be a genuine individual in what he says and, um, how he, he talks about these things. What are your thoughts on Skinwalker Ranch? Um, pretty interesting. It's not just Skinwalker either. There's other ranches in and around that part of Utah that also have very strange things happen. Uh, Katie Grabowski just gave a talk at the UFO Festival in uh, McMinnville, Oregon, talking about all kinds of weird stuff happening at, at a ranch um, where she grew up, uh, very similar to what's reported at Skinwalker. So yeah, I think it's interesting. I'm glad people are are still continuing to investigate that and hopefully get some um, something tangible that we can break apart. Do you prefer the term UFO or UAP? I don't care. I use them all interchangeably these days. Uh, UAV, UFO, UAP. It's, it's all the same thing. I, I understand why we change it. I, I did that in my first book. I called them IFOs just to kind of create a separation because UFO has been so stigmatized, but um, now that that stigma is waning, I, I think we should still call them UFOs. That's what we've always called them. We're still talking about the same thing. The phenomenon hasn't changed. So um, yeah, as as that stigma continues to diminish, I think we could bring it back. Um, but I use UAP and UAV as well. Do you think we're heading towards disclosure or confirmation? Uh, pardon my ignorance, but I don't. What's the what's the distinction there? I suppose when we're looking at the capital D disclosure, it's the White House coming out and confirming, yep, there's alien life, we've got the disks and all that sort of stuff, as opposed to confirmation of maybe learning along with ignorance that we're, we announce that we've caught a picture of something and there might be something out there and we're just discovering it along with the, the human race. Hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess both sound great. Um Disclosure seems, from what you just described, to have more uh, more involved, more content, I guess, if I'm understanding that correctly. Yeah, yeah, so absolutely. Yeah. Let's go with that one. Sure, brilliant. And uh, what I'd like to finish up on is you've mentioned your, your coming book. Have you got a timescale on it, uh, a title, or any more information you can give and how people can find your work? Yeah, um, finally making some progress on that again. I um, had it, my three reviewers had it from July to October. Uh, made the mistake of paying one of them an elk sausage, so it took a little longer than I thought it would. But I got it back. Um, they all contributed substantially, offering a lot of good criticism and insights and just things I hadn't thought about, which has been the case since my first book. People reaching out to me saying, hey, have you thought about this? Or even people from the intelligence community um, who have told me things that I didn't even consider, but made so much sense once they did. So I'm trying to work a lot of those things in. Uh, the title is The Extra Tempestrial Model. Um, I've got a cover now. And uh, I'm on the last round of edits before sending it to my editor, which should be um, 
by the first of the year. So I'll just have to go through and, and fix whatever they find, record the audio book and, and hit publish. So yeah, hopefully within the next three to four months. Very excited to read that. And obviously when it comes out, it'd be great to have you back on to discuss it a little bit further. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a fundamentally different book. It's much more conversational. I still get into, you know, some of the the technical aspects of, of our evolution and, and genomics and uh, CRISPR and things like that as they're relevant, but it's a, a different focus. It's more about um, the abduction aspect of the phenomenon, um, which I didn't really touch on too much in the first book. So it kind of flips it around and um, yeah, just a different approach. It's been super fascinating to research, um, looking at all these different case studies over the course of a hundred years from all over the planet and just seeing how much consistency there is among them. It's, um, it's, it's really interesting. This, uh, phenomenon has been with us for a long time and, uh, it's, uh, it, it's never, never dull. It's never a dull moment and going down these rabbit holes. People can pick up Identified Flying Objects, a multidisciplinary scientific approach to the UFO phenomenon. It's available wherever books are sold. I always say Amazon, but a few people have mentioned they like supporting local bookstores. So wherever you can pick up the book, go out and get it. It's a great read. And of course, looking forward to that book coming up in future. And if you've got a social media handle you want to give out, I believe it is at Morpho Time on Twitter. Yeah, on Twitter, it's Morpho Time. Also the same on Instagram. And I just got on Instagram and I don't really have many followers. So if anybody wants to follow me over there, that would be lovely. Um, uh, yeah, I've got a website, michaelpmasters.com. And there's links to all of those other uh, sites in there as well. Awesome. It's been great speaking to you, Dr. Masters. Uh, have a great Christmas, great holidays, and look forward to speaking to you in the new year. Awesome. Yeah, thanks again for having me on. It's been uh, it's been great chatting with you. That is all for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. You can like, retweet and subscribe. That would all be very much appreciated. The shows are being uploaded onto YouTube as we speak more and more. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast to access shows ad free as well. Please get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that UFO podcast. Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, U-A-P-A-M. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer, a little Baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shoved out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a little Imagine how it could have been any better. I got to the top of the stairs and there he was. Like you awake? I was about to abduct you, cuz. I jumped back and nearly kissed myself. Then I climbed out the window after the elf. And I woke up in my bed and there was something on my head and everything was weird and everything was red. And I called up my boys. They thought this was noise. They thought it was a dream. They thought it was my toys. They thought it was my problems. And they think I should see. Because it doesn't really scare me. If you really want to know who I think they 
Thank you.